Well, now we'll turn to God's Word. And in the book of Ezekiel, as many of you know, we've been going through Ezekiel. And this morning we're going to be in chapters 8 and 9. We'll continue our study, uh, Can These Dry Bones Live? And, of course, our contention and our hope is certainly that they can and they will indeed live. I'm going to invite Judy and Charlie Stabilepsi forward who will be reading chapters 8 and 9 for us. Again, this is uh, another lengthy reading. Thank you for being attentive to the Word of God. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezekiel 8 and 9. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance of a man. Below what appeared to be his waist was fire, and above his waist was something like the appearance of brightness, like gleaming metal. Put out the form of a hand and took me by lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes to the north, and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was the image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing there to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there, engraved on the wall all around, was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, which Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing above standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pitchers? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, You will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? You will still see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, at the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men, with their backs to the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, worshipping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. 
Hang on to chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his wet waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist, brought back word, saying, I have done as you commanded me. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God and our Redeemer, O God. We need to get better about that. Let's try that again. But the word of our God will stand forever. <laughs> Let me say that begrudgingly. Come on, guys. Is God's holy and perfect word. Hmm. <clears throat> Thank you, Judy and Charlie, for that great reading. On Halloween Eve of 1938, thousands of people across America tuned into the news to hear a live radio broadcast reporting that Martians had just invaded New Jersey. Yeah, explains a lot, right? <laughs> Some listeners grew very anxious and began to make phone calls to police, newspaper offices, and radio stations as they listened to the terrifying radio broadcast that many of them were convinced was real. Many of these listeners had missed the opening announcement that Orson Welles, a 23-year-old American actor, and his Mercury Theater would be doing a live radio dramatization of H.G. Wells' iconic War of the Worlds novel, taking the fictional story and converting it into fake news bulletins. It is alleged that by the next morning, Halloween morning, there was a full-blown mass panic, and Wells' face and name were on the front pages of newspapers coast to coast. He awoke to find himself the most talked-about man in America. Smithsonian Magazine writes these words about 
the moment. Quote, Wells barely had time to glance at the papers, leaving him with only a horribly vague sense of what he had done to the country. He'd heard reports of mass stampedes, of suicides, and of angered listeners threatening to shoot him on sight. If I'd planned to wreck my career, he told several people at the time, I could not have gone about it better. With his livelihood and even possibly at that time his freedom on the line, Wells went before dozens of reporters, photographers, and newsreel cameramen at a hastily arranged press conference in the CBS building. Each journalist asked him some variation of the same basic question. Had he intended or did he at all anticipate that War of the Worlds would throw its audience into panic? End quote. Felicia, you could pull that image up if you've got it. Here we have Orson Welles with his arms raised, pictured there with the Mercury Theater, rehearsing for the live radio depiction of H.G. Wells's classic War of the Worlds novel. So this is all a radio dramatization done live, and many people missed that opening word that this was just a dramatization and thought it was real. Fake news is not a new thing. Wells's fake news, quote, about the alien invasion, although a silly Halloween joke of sorts, resulted in a great deal of pain and panic and confusion. Thankfully, he was able to clear it all up, it sounds like, anyway. I don't think he went to jail. Anyway. But there was a much more sinister and vile form of fake news happening in Ezekiel's day, one that was not just some silly Halloween prank. You see, unlike the War of the Worlds fake news, which stirred up a frenzy, the fake news of Ezekiel's day was a message of peace. False prophets had arisen in those days, and many were telling the people that the exile would soon end and that Babylon would soon be broken. If you were to look in Jeremiah chapter 28, you would hear Hananiah telling the people that the exiles were soon to return to Jerusalem and all would be well as Babylon was defeated and broken. Remember, Jeremiah was a contemporary of Ezekiel's. So these two books are historically overlapping, happening at roughly the same time. And what you have in, is uh, in Jerusalem, false prophets like Hananiah, telling the priests, the king and the people, Babylon's going to fall. And at the same time, over in Babylon, God is giving visions to Ezekiel, saying the exact opposite. And in this second series of prophecies and visions that we have here before us in the book of Ezekiel, God is going to basically show Ezekiel what is going on in the temple in Jerusalem, proving to him why there can be no peace, even though false prophets are saying, peace, 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 nothing to worry about. Do you know why there can be no peace at this point in our story? Because there is no repentance. There was no acknowledgement of sin and no turning from it. There was no recognition of guilt or wrongdoing at all no desire on the part of the Jews to make it right. 
And there can be no peace with God until one turns to God in true repentance and faith. Today's passage is going to give us some lessons on repentance. We could probably find a whole host of lessons here in this passage, but I see uh, four major lessons here for us today that I want to um, pull out of the passage, or I hope will roll out of, of the passage. But before we get into that, let's quickly review what is going on up to this point in the book. Some of you may have been following along and are well aware of all that's happening. This may be uh, some folks' first or second time with us, so I want to do a quick review. Ezekiel, along with thousands of his countrymen, find themselves in Babylon, a long way away from home. Felicia, if you've got that map, pull that up whenever it is. We've got the reflex. Hopefully it'll it'll help folks. We believe that Ezekiel was in the area of ancient Nippur, which is about 100 miles south of modern-day Baghdad. Again, where that red flag there is, that's roughly where we believe Ezekiel to have been held captive with uh, many of the Israelites at this time. And he's in Babylon. The Babylonians have come in and taken many um, out to their home country, or out of their home country, sorry. Ezekiel was to be a priest. Um, he was in the line of, of priests and no doubt was looking forward to serving God in the temple in Jerusalem, but that dream was cut short by uh, the invasion of the Babylon, uh, Babylonians, and they took him away from, from the temple. So after five years in exile, God appears to him in a vision and calls him to be a prophet who will deliver messages to the people in exile. Now, 14 months after receiving that first vision and being asked to perform a series of, of sermons without words for months on end, we talked about this in previous weeks, these what we called action sermons, which were kind of like a form of street theater, which Ezekiel did day after day after day after day for months on end. After all of that, after that 14 month period of doing these things, Ezekiel receives another vision. And that's where we are this morning. And it appears at this point in our story that the people there in exile have recognized now that Ezekiel is a prophet of the Lord. And at the start of the account before us today, the elders of Judah are sitting there before him seeking wisdom, seeking a word from the Lord. You'll notice right there at the start of chapter 8, there they are. The elders are there before Ezekiel. Now, my mind speculates. I have no proof of this or, or no uh, direct text or part in the Scriptures to lead me to this thought, but perhaps what is happening here is that uh, some of the other prophets back in Jerusalem were saying something that they wanted to know about. Prophets like the one we just read of and, uh, or heard about in Jeremiah 28, saying, peace, peace. The Babylonians are, the Babylonians are soon going to be broken and the exile will be over. Perhaps they've heard this word and want to come to Ezekiel and say, what do you say? Do you say that we're going to be going home? They're asking about these predictions, wanting Ezekiel's take on things. Perhaps. This is speculation. And while they're out there sitting before Ezekiel, Ezekiel is given another vision. And this vision is also quite remarkable and very much like the one he had at the start of the book. I'm not going to go all into all the details of the vision, which would take us far afield. We've already touched on a lot of that earlier uh, in, in Ezekiel. But one scholar calls this vision here in chapter 8 and 9 
the vision of the unholy temple. We see it in detail in chapter 8. In this vision, in verses 1 through 4, we're told that Ezekiel is transported to the temple, a temple in Jerusalem, and God is going to show him in his mind's eye why the words of these false prophets were just that, false. They were lies. He's going to show Ezekiel what is There would be no peace between the people and God. There would be no end to the exile, at least not right now, because there was no repentance. The Israelites had repeatedly, over and over again, broken the covenant that they had made with God. And God's patience had run out. Now the first thing we're going to see about true repentance is its importance the importance of true repentance. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. And he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now towards the north. And so I lifted up my eyes toward the north. And behold, north of the altar gate, in the entrance was this image of jealousy. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. Notice that we're not given details about the nature of this idolatry, this image, this image of jealousy, as it's called. We're not told exactly what this is. It's not described to us. And the reason, I think, for that is so that the focus remains on the tremendous offense that is given here to God. It doesn't matter what the details are. The main point is that God is grieved, offended. He's been sinned against by this image. Now let's ponder the significance of this for just a moment. That here in the in the temple complex there is this image, this idol, which has been which is forbidden in the law of God. That there should be no likeness, no carving, no other image of God made of him. Or an attempt to be an image attempting to convey who God what God might be like. But let's ponder the significance of this for a moment. What is the temple? Let's think about that. The temple The temple is that special place where God comes down to meet with His people. But for them to meet with Him, what must they do? Do they just show up? Waltz into God's presence in this place? No. They must come to Him in a certain way. They must come through a priest. And that priest must offer up a blood sacrifice to atone or pay for the sin of the people. And that priest must also himself atone for himself. And he must be clean. And he must go through a series of rituals to make sure that he can come in to proximity with the presence of God in this place. This one place dedicated to that. All of this would have been a reminder that the way to God was through repentance. It was through acknowledging that you're bad. God is good, right? Just to put it really simply, in layman's terms. And you can't just fly up into His presence however you desire. The entire temple, the whole place was a reminder of these things. There's a story in the Gospel of Luke. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. It's in chapter 18. And it's about a religious leader who goes up to the temple to pray and he prays this really great, eloquent prayer. And he says, Lord, thank You for Your grace that You've given to me that I'm not like other people. He's really confident. He stands up and you can just imagine him in your mind's eye, really proud and 
and uh, confidence. Talks about how he loves God and all these things he's done for God. And then the story says that another man followed him up to the temple, but that man did not feel worthy to approach the temple and wouldn't even raise his eyes up to pray. He simply pounded his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Jesus said that man, that second man, went to his house in the right way, correct, justified. That man understood what the temple symbolized. He knew as he approached, the only way to come to God was to come low. It was to come acknowledging you are unworthy to approach this holy you see, without repentance, no one can approach God. This is how important repentance is. It is vital that we see ourselves as sinners, as people who have transgressed the perfect law of God. If you don't see this, you cannot have fellowship with God. I received a note on our sign yesterday. Someone came and took down the letters without permission and placed them under the sign and then left a note for me, I guess. I'm thankful to that person, whoever they might be, um, for not doing damage to our property, though I don't know that taking our letters down was the right thing to do. One might say that this was a form of light vandalism or soft vandalism. And after a series of pronouncements in this letter that they gave, again, presumably to me, um, after a series of pronouncements of condemnation, the note said that I need to, quote, blossom into the fullness of your magnificent self. It said that I am a being of light and that I need to be free from the curse that I am under. I don't know what exactly they mean by all of that, but it sure sounds like the siren song of fake news. Peace, peace, peace. Just like the false prophets in the day of Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Because there is a curse. And it's not over just me and all of you. It's over every single person who's ever been born into the faith, onto this earth. Except me. Jesus Christ. There is a curse over me and over all of us. And it's called sin. And we're freed from that curse, not by pretending that it is not there, but by repenting of our wrongs and coming to God. Without this first step, acknowledging we are sinners and that we're under this curse, that we've broken God's law, we cannot be in fellowship with God. And sadly, after having dwelt in the temple for over 400 years, God would now depart because the people of Israel, His chosen people, had abandoned the practice of repentance. Are you practicing repentance? Do you take time each day to confess your sins? John Calvin, one of the great leaders of the Reformation, often prayed this prayer before going to bed. A great time to look back over the day and to think about maybe the ways you have fallen short and to confess your sins. Calvin prayed this. But since this day has not passed away without my having in many ways offended you through my proneness to evil, in like manner... As all things are now covered by the darkness of the night, so let everything that is sinful in me lie buried in your mercy. Hear me, O God, Father and Preserver, through Jesus Christ, your Son. 
He would pray that often before he would go to bed. Repentance is vital to relationship with God. It is that important. You cannot have relationship with God without repentance. So let's look at our second point about repentance. That was the first one, the importance of it. Now the second point, the comprehensiveness of true repentance. The comprehensiveness of true repentance. Let's look at the next part of this vision in verses 7 through 12. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. And so I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood seventy men of the elders and of the house of Israel, with Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. Each had his censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. And then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. In this portion of the vision, Ezekiel is allowed to see something that would normally be impossible to see. Now, whether or not Ezekiel is seeing an actual place with actual people in the temple, or whether or not this is some kind of a spiritual phenomenon is is debated. But here we have a wall with a concealed entrance that leads into a space where we find 70 elders of the house of Israel inside worshiping all kinds of idols. Now look at verse 12 with me quickly again. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in his room of pictures? For they say the Lord does not see us. It says there are 70 elders, each in their own room of pictures. Now it's unlikely that we, here we have 70 separate rooms inside the temple complex. That's unlikely. It's a lot of rooms. We must remember, as we think about this, that this is a vision. And what is being seen in a vision is often not natural. So while Ezekiel is seeing something that is obviously the temple, he would have recognized this as the temple in Jerusalem, somehow it's being shown to him in ways that are not actually reflective of the literal temple. So perhaps what he's seeing here is a physical picture of a spiritual reality, very much like the grand visions he's been given of God himself so far up to this point in the book. You know, we've seen these visions of of God on a throne, right, with wheels and cherubim carrying Him around, so to speak. These are physical pictures. He really saw these things, but they're portraying some kind of spiritual truth. God doesn't travel around with a throne, you know, and, and cherubim and all of that. That's not literally how God moves around. It's a spiritual vision. So when we keep that in mind, I think the big point in this section becomes clear. God sees what no one else can see. That's the big point, I think, that's being conveyed here. No wall can keep the eye of God from seeing us. Here Ezekiel is allowed to peek inside of of the rooms, or maybe the hearts, if you will, of Israel's leaders. These 70 elders, he's seeing in their hearts what is 
happening. And what he sees is rampant idolatry. They have all kinds of idols in their hearts. And this is precisely what Ezekiel is going to see in the rest of the vision as well. He sees women bowing to a Sumerian god called Tammuz. And he sees 25 men representing the various priestly orders of Israel's worship of Israel worshiping a star. He sees the priests worshiping the sun, a star. God sees all. So true repentance must take this absolute fact into account. God sees your heart. When people don't see, God sees. And what this means is that we must not only repent of the things we get caught doing by people, the things that people see us do that are wrong. We must repent of those things that only God sees. For if we only acknowledge our wrongs when we are caught by people, what we're actually doing is not repentance. We're just grieving that we got caught. We're sorry, but not really that sorry. I'm sorry that I got caught, right? That is not repentance. For repentance to be true, it must be comprehensive. What that means is that you're confessing those things that only God sees. You're owning up to to God for those things that only He knows about. Maybe your motive. Maybe some of the good things we do that were done with wrong motive even perhaps. Right? Some of these things may be things we were praised by men for. When you mail that suffering friend of yours a card and you made sure that everyone knew you mailed them a card. Just as a random example. Maybe there was something going on in here that wasn't quite right that needs to be confessed to God. Or when you exaggerate the size of that fish you caught, right? Why are you doing that? Now those are small examples, but you get what I'm saying. We do all kinds of things that are just between us and God. Only He sees the motives and intentions of our heart. Unchecked, these small inward sins, even if they are unseen by men, can destroy your relationship with God. These are idols. No different than what the men and women and the priests were doing in this vision we see here before Ezekiel. These are all things we should confess to God. If repentance is true, it will be comprehensive, not just the things that are outward and obvious that people see, but the things that only God sees. That's the second point. Now onto our third point about true repentance. True repentance confesses cultural sins. True repentance confesses cultural sins. This is kind of a a sub-point even of the the previous one about the comprehensiveness of it. Of, of our confession if we're truly repentant. We're not only confessing our sins that we know are going on in our heart, but we're looking at our culture and, and seeing, look at our culture. What a mess. I somehow am a part of this and I need to confess it. Let's look in chapter 9 and we'll see. I hope we'll see this here in chapter 9. Ezekiel is still in a visionary state in chapter 9. And in this portion of the vision, we see the Lord executing judgment. Verse 1 says, Uh, in the ESV, then he cried in my ears with a loud voice saying, bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. But the word here that is used for executioners also has 
the meaning of those who are in charge of or who govern. So the NIV, for instance, has, Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. These are some, some kind of spiritual leader type figures, most likely angelic beings. These are angels that are given authority over this place to govern and execute judgment. We are told here that there are seven of them, six who will destroy and then one clothed in linen who will supervise this judgment. The gruesome work of destruction would begin in the sanctuary. The six angels would follow the one angel clothed in linen with the writing case. One scholar writes this, without pity, they had to club to death all men and women, all the old and the young, both married and single. End quote. The angels then took the bodies of those they had just slain and brought them into the temple and piled them up in the temple. This was an intentional act of defilement. God had left. Actually, there's a, a little bit of a kind of a parenthetical parenthesis kind of statement in chapter 9 where Ezekiel is looking forward to what happens in chapter 10 already, which is God leaving the temple. So God is on his way out of the temple. This no longer was his house. It was completely defiled. No one could ever enter and worship him anymore in that place. It was ritually unclean. It was defiled. Everything was unclean and unfit for worship. Now he piled the bodies up intentionally to make the point. You will not be worshiping here, me here anymore. We read this, and it is almost unbelievable. How could God condemn all of these people, even children? Were they all really engaged in this idol worship? I mean, we get that the leaders and the priests were there. Ezekiel saw in their hearts all the idols that were set up there and what they were doing, but were all of these people really guilty as they go through the streets and execute judgment on women and children and everyone? Had they defiled themselves too? I mean, all of them. Corporate guilt is a real thing, folks. Somehow we are a part of the mess of our time and place. Our culture's sins are in some way our sins. Not that we're literally guilty of everything our culture does, but we are naive to think we are not influenced by it. True repentance confesses cultural sin. It looks around and is broken and grieved by the evils and wrongs it sees. True repentance is ashamed of its culture's vices and sins. True repentance runs to God and pleads that God would have mercy on its home, its town, and its nation? Do you look at your family, your spouse, your children, your town, your country, and sigh and groan over the sin you see? Do you grieve knowing that you somehow are influenced by your culture's evil and that you even contribute to them in some way? 
Have you ever gone to our town's Facebook billboard and see the way that people relate to each other? Does it not break your heart? Now, I don't mean that you look at it in judgment. Look down your nose. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is that you see a mirror. You see yourself. You see your own capability. You see that you often do those things. Do you see that? You should. And if you do, that is a mark of true repentance. When you say, yep, that's me. I'm capable of that. I've done that. I might do that. That's true repentance. We live in such a broken nation. We all should daily be confessing the sins of our land and our part in them. That is a mark of true repentance. Ezekiel, as he sees it all unfold in this vision, he is completely undone. Look at verse 8 with me there in chapter 9. We hear him say, And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and I cried, Oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath? Will you, Lord? You can almost imagine Ezekiel tearing his clothes as he watched women, children, everyone be slain in the streets, weeping as he watches. And then the Lord responds with these horrifying words. In verse 9 and following. The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. In other words, there will be no mercy. Patience has run out. Time for justice. Ezekiel's cries and his pleas were not heard. But let me tell you, folks, that there is one whose pleas are always heard. One who even now is pleading for God to have mercy. One who is in the very throne room of heaven, the real throne room, not the copy that we see in Jerusalem in this passage that we're talking about here. Not the copy, but the real throne room in the very presence of Almighty God. And as I speak to you right now, He is there in prayer for all of His people. And we get a glimpse of Him here in this passage this morning. We get a glimpse of Him. Notice that God does spare some here, like we've seen in previous passages as well. There is a remnant mentioned in verse 4. And we're given two important details about that remnant. These are very important. Let's read uh, verse 4 together. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. First notice, these people are sighing and groaning over the sin around them. Do you see that? In other words, there's an acknowledgement of the sin. They're not surprised at God's judgment. They're not preaching peace, peace when there is no peace. 
Just be yourself. You're wonderful. You're great. No, they don't see that. They see this is deserved. This is justice. This is right. Yet they grieve because of the sin. How terrible, O Lord. We have transgressed Your law to such a degree that this is the the response. They're truly sorry. We get this sense they're sighing and groaning. They're sorry for their sin. That's the first thing to notice here. There's evidence of repentance here. Second thing to notice is the mark that is placed upon their forehead. The mark was placed there because the forehead is easily and quickly recognized so that the destroying angels would see it immediately and not destroy those that bore the mark. Now in the Hebrew, that expression mark is actually the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the tav, or tav, I think as they would say, tav. Scholars say that in Ezekiel's day, when primitive Hebrew was used, this mark would have looked like what? Would have looked like a small cross. The early church saw in this symbol a reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross pointing forward to the reason that the remnant can be forgiven. And this is our final point on on repentance here. True repentance looks to the work of another. A capital A. Another. It's not trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps say, I'll do better next time. That's not real repentance, or at least that's not where real repentance finds its strength. Real repentance looks to the work of another. Because one day, on a cross, Jesus would die a death that you and I deserved. And He would die that death because He so desired that we would have the joy and privilege of knowing God and being with Him forever. All you have to do to receive that forgiveness And that mark is what we've talked about today. Don't listen to the siren song of fake news that tells you everything is okay. You just be you. You're fine. That is a lie. Don't listen to that word that says, you can do it. You're enough. Everyone is good deep down. Just be positive. Don't dwell on that negative stuff. That's fake news, folks. Hear this. True repentance looks to another. It puts no confidence in its own goodness. It doesn't say, I'm good, I'm right, I'm okay. It says, I need help. And it looks outside of itself. And when we do that, we're beginning to do the very thing we're talking about here. We're we're repenting. We're saying, I am not sufficient. I can't do this. I am broken. I have sinned. I deserve God's justice. So repent of your sins. And what that means is you acknowledge them. You see them for what they are. You're you're not just acknowledging the big stuff you get caught for. You're acknowledging that your heart is a factory of idols and that right in here it is broken and everything that comes out is twisted and broken. You see them for what they are. You see that your sins have separated from you you from God and you can't just sweep them under the big cosmic rug and act like they're not there. And once you acknowledge them, you bring them to to God and you say, Lord, I've messed up big time. 
I've really messed up. Will you forgive me? I can't fix this. Only you, God, can fix this. And then you trust in His solution. And what is His solution? Jesus. Jesus is the answer, the solution. And we see it all here in this passage implied. If you'd like to talk to me more about Jesus after the service, you can just come right up and talk to me. But remember these lessons on repentance, and I pray they would encourage you and instruct you as you seek to walk with the Lord. Amen. Now as we turn to the Lord in worship, I want to pray. We're going to sing a song called, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. But I want to pray. Let's pray. Lord, as we ponder these deep things, as we look at, again, another challenging passage that reminds us of of the death that we all deserve, the judgment that we all deserve because of our sins, let it prompt us to look to another. Let it prompt us to turn from our sins and to look in faith upon the One who came and endured all and did all for us, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us survey that wondrous cross now as we sing and be moved to deeper love and deeper repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.